WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. A lot of times, whenever you're looking up at the night sky, a lot of people think that you're only really looking at stars, but there's also galaxies as well. Today we're here to talk with Claire Kopenhofer, who's here to talk to us about her work on galaxy research. Claire, thanks for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. So I'm a graduate student here at Michigan State. I'm in the fifth year of my PhD program, so I'm really close to graduating. And yeah, like Danny said, I research galaxies, but rather than using telescopes like most people think astronomers might use, I actually use supercomputers and model galaxies inside supercomputers to study them. Thanks for joining us today, Claire. I know we've had a research in the past using quantum computing, which was a very intense supercomputer, basically. What kind of supercomputer are you using? Yeah, I actually use what's called a classical computer. So quantum computers are are really sort of a cutting edge research thing and, and people are trying to get them to work. But I use basically like if you picture your own laptop or your desktop at home, the supercomputers I use are basically multiple laptops and desktops strung together to work together as one big machine. So it's not quite as strange and as out there as quantum computing. Quantum computing, it's much more rooted in the familiar. That's completely understandable. Quantum computing is still in its infancy at the moment. Let's take a step back, though. People hear the term galaxies all the time, but what is a galaxy and what do they consist of? Hopefully, listeners maybe have access to the internet and could maybe Google a picture of a galaxy from Hubble because I love them. They're really pretty to look at. But the basic unit of a galaxy is really stars. So that's what we see when we look out with telescopes. We see the light from the stars in a galaxy. And so you think of our own Milky Way, most of the stars that you see in the sky at least the really bright ones, are stars that are within our same galaxy as us. So the other big component of galaxies is what we astronomers colloquially refer to as gas. And it's really not that different from gas here on Earth, like the air in the room with you. You know, you can't see it. It's a bunch of particles flying around, maybe at high speeds. But that is the stuff that eventually turns into stars. And so even though it doesn't shine like the stars do, it's actually a really important component for galaxies because it is what creates that building block of the stars. Thanks for helping our listeners picture what a galaxy is. What are you specifically studying with these supercomputers about the galaxies? As I mentioned, that gas in the galaxy is really the key component for forming stars. So the story of how galaxies continue forming stars over the history of the universe really comes down to how they use that gas. It's basically like a resource management problem. So I look at what we call galaxy evolution. There's two basic kinds of galaxies out there that we classify as star forming, meaning they are actively in the process of turning gas into stars. And then there are galaxies that we call quiescent or red and dead is sort of the colloquial term. And these are galaxies that are not as much turning that gas into stars. There might be a little bit of stars forming over scales of millions of years, but it pales in comparison to the actively star forming galaxies. And so a lot of galaxy evolution, which is a field of astronomy, is concerned with how do galaxies go from star forming to not star forming, what changes about their supply of gas that actually causes that to happen? 
And so, you know, I mentioned the big components of a galaxy are stars and gas. And if you look at certain Hubble images, if you do a Google search, sometimes you'll find some of them have some pink in them. That's an artificial coloring used to highlight the gas. The gas doesn't actually shine pink, but we can trace it through other means, uh, through other forms of light outside of what our eyes can see. And so to make it show up in pictures, we color it pink. So there's gas within the galaxy, but a lot of my research actually is focused on gas that's outside of the galaxy and how it gets into the center and forms stars and allows that cycle of star formation to continue and what actually causes it to stop if it does stop. Well, it's like you said, these galaxies are massive and they have several components to them that really just make up the whole of the galaxy. But it was really interesting to hear about how there's these different classes of galaxies between the quiescent galaxies that don't really form any stars and those that do. When it comes to your computer modeling, how do you actually manage all of these minute parts that go into a galaxy simulation? Do you actually recreate individual stars? How does that all work? Yeah, that's a really great question because, as you said, galaxies, they're really, really massive. So a galaxy like our Milky Way is like 65,000 light years across. And so a light year is the distance that light travels in a year. For reference, the closest star is about three light years away. So these things are huge. And when we put them in a computer, there's sort of things that are smaller than an individual galaxy are important. So like the things that are inside them, like stars, these you know, gas, and I haven't talked about too much dust, but you'll see that in pictures of galaxies. That's all stuff that's like inside the galaxy. And then there's stuff outside the galaxy that's also important. There's gas around a galaxy. There's other neighboring galaxies. There are groups. There are clusters. There's It's all the stuff that we call large-scale structure. So in our simulations, depending on the question we want to target, we do our best to capture as much of this large-scale structure, this stuff outside of any individual galaxies. And then, you know, we are also trying to capture what's inside the galaxy. The big problem with galaxy simulations is that the stars, individual stars, or even just clusters of stars forming out of the same clump of gas are so much smaller than the galaxy itself everything that's outside the galaxy. It's just too much of a difference in scale between the galaxy itself and the formation of stars. So our simulations, you know, we track gravity, we track the motion of gas as a fluid, we track magnetic fields, we can do all those sorts of things because we understand them really well, you know, scientifically and theoretically, we have all these equations that we can solve for that. But the formation of stars they sort of fall below the minimum resolution of our simulations, the smallest distance that we can model. So we call them sub-resolution models. Basically, we say, oh, well, here's some gas. It's kind of dense and it's flowing together and it's cold. So we're going to just say a glump of stars forms here, even though we can't directly model like the actual formation of those stars. And it turns out that's a really big source of uncertainty in these simulations because we're trying to encapsulate, you know, a physical process that's really complicated in something that has to be relatively simple because we have to work at these larger scales and how actually you go about that. And it's very complicated to figure out and it has a really, really big impact on the results you get out of the simulation. Something you said that stood out to me is how you model gas as a fluid. 
Can you explain more about that? And are you able to distinguish what type of gases are there? Yeah. So when I say gas is a fluid, I think, you know, usually when we think about here on earth, we think of liquids like water as fluids. But if you think of, you know, wind tunnel experiments, or people are looking at how air flows over an airplane wing, for example, that is a fluid model. So gas and liquids, they both are what fall under this category fluids. And so they obey a certain set of equations for how they move. And so it's very similar to like doing, again, that air movement over an airplane wing. So for the different gases within the simulations, most of the universe, by which I mean like 70%, is hydrogen. And so we usually just treat the gas as hydrogen gas. There is another percentage, about 20%, 25%, that is helium. In the simulation, there is, we'll say, okay, this gas is some fraction of hydrogen and some fraction of helium, and we won't track them separately, but we'll just track sort of that composition. And then the third final important component, astronomers, to the offense of every chemist out there, uh, call everything, every element that is heavier than helium, so basically the whole rest of the periodic table, we just call it all metals which is not at all what chemists would call metals, but we call them metals. So we track the fraction of gas that is in metals very broadly. We don't usually separate out oxygen and carbon and things like that because it's just so small compared to the hydrogen and the helium. That's most of the universe out there. But actually metals do end up being really important for the dynamics of the simulation. So we still have to care about them. Yeah, I remember when I was taking nuclear astrophysics, I thought that was really weird how everything heavier than helium was considered a metal and how you would classify different stars by the amount of metallicity that they had in them. And for those that don't know, metallicity just refers to how much of those heavier elements exist within the star. As you had mentioned, you're a fifth year PhD candidate now. What are the kinds of steps that you had to take to get this simulation running? For example, what kinds of assumptions do you have to make for star formation when it comes to galaxies? You had already mentioned that you're assuming that 70% of the gas in there is around hydrogen. What else are you taking into account? For my simulations, I am doing simulations of just a single galaxy. So I'm actually ignoring all of that large-scale structure that I talked about. It doesn't have any galaxy friends that impact its evolution because that gets really complicated really quickly. And we wanted to be able to sort of very concretely focus on one galaxy without these like interrupting factors from other galaxies and things. So I'm just looking at one galaxy, and that already is a big assumption because there really aren't that many galaxies out there that are just all by themselves. The other sort of assumptions that we're making is that, so galaxies are held together by gravity, and most of that gravity comes from dark matter. Dark matter is matter that we can't see because it doesn't interact via light. So like we can't go out and look at it with telescopes or with our eyes. But we know it's there because of its gravitational effects on the galaxy. It holds it together and keeps it rotating in a way that we can predict. So we're assuming that there's dark matter and that dark matter follows a certain distribution in space so that it's denser in the center and it gets less dense as you go farther out from the center of the galaxy in a way that we've described with a mathematical formula. The trick with that, of course, is that mathematical equations don't always perfectly describe things out in nature. There's always some scatter, there's some variance, there's some deviation from that. So that's another big assumption. I talked about our stars, because we can't directly model their formation. We have to meet a certain set of criteria for when we form stars. 
And we have to make choices and assumptions about what that criteria is. What is the density below which we're going to, or above which we're going to say, yeah, we can form a star here. What is the temperature of the gas? And for reference here, the temperature, so we talk about temperature in Kelvin, which is for basically Celsius, the zero point of Celsius, so zero degrees Celsius is like 273 degrees Kelvin. So they're for astrophysics, they're basically the same because the hottest parts of the galaxy are at a million Kelvin. And when we talk about cold gas, we're talking about a measly 10,000 Kelvin. So not really cold by Earth standards. But we have to choose how cold do we want our gas to be before we start forming stars. So that's another big assumption. Um, and then just the biggest struggle that's been with my simulations has been choosing what we call the initial conditions. What does the start of the simulation look like? Because we can press go on the simulation code and it will follow the laws of physics as we have programmed them. And it will say, okay, well, gravity has this effect. Hydrodynamics has this effect. We're going to move the fluid around according to both gravity and, and the fluid equations. But the conditions at which you start the very beginning of the simulation have a huge impact on what actually goes on. Everything evolves from that starting point. So if your starting point is wrong in some way, then the whole rest of the simulation will be off. And actually, I had a really good instance of this just recently. I had to rerun a whole bunch of my simulations because I found a bug where the rotation of the galaxy was actually not coded correctly. And it was too slow. It was rotating too slow. And this would have an impact on the whole rest of the simulation that I had to run. So I had to restart from the beginning because there was no way to go in the middle and fix it. So initial conditions are where a lot of the biggest assumptions come into in these simulations. You've been conducting your studies for the past five years of your PhD, but galaxies exist for a really long period of time. How do your simulations connect to the observations of galaxy formations? Yeah, so like you said, galaxies, they change over billions of years, like the longest timescale is sort of in our universe. When we go out with telescopes, not me, but, you know, observers, when people look at them with telescopes, we're getting just a snapshot of that moment in time, basically. And so in order to get a sense of how real galaxies out in space evolve, you have to look at a large number of them, trying to catch different galaxies at different points in their evolution. So my work, because I'm focusing on sort of a fictional galaxy, I'm not trying to mimic any one particular galaxy, I get the privilege of watching it evolve over those billions of years because I'm not watching it in real time. The trick of theory and simulations trying to match up with what we actually see with our telescopes when we go look at space, all of these different snapshots that we get from space observations, these different snapshots of galaxies at different points in time, we try to stitch them together to say, okay, well, if this galaxy is doing this one thing over here and then this other one is doing this other thing, like, can we connect those together in time and, and draw a picture of how galaxies change from little snapshots? And so the role of theory is to basically say, okay, well, we think that these snapshots of galaxies stitch together in this certain way. Let's go model a galaxy in a computer and see if that actually matches up. And usually the answer is no, but you learn a lot of interesting things from that mismatch. For instance, with my own research, we think galaxies control their amount of star formation in a certain way based on a bunch of different observations, decades worth of observations that other people have done. And so we think we know how that happens. 
let's go put it in the computer model and see if we can basically recreate what we think happens. And for my work, the answer was no, but the answer was a very informative no. Uh, we forgot, basically, we, we tried to simplify the problem by ignoring all that stuff outside one individual galaxy by just having a galaxy all by its lonesome. And it turns out all of that stuff outside the galaxy is actually really important, which feels a little silly in hindsight. We're like, oh, I guess we couldn't ignore it. It was necessary to this whole, but that's kind of broadly how you use theory to help understand what's going on with observations. Because in a computer, you can watch things evolve through time. But when you look out at the sky, you're stuck just like looking at the current time, but looking at multiple galaxies as they are right now. Thanks for clarifying on that, Claire. I think that makes it a lot easier for our audience to get an understanding of the work that you're doing. People know the Milky Way is what's known as a spiral galaxy. But there's other kinds of galaxies that have different shapes as well. When it comes to the simulations that you're doing, what kind of shape are you assuming for the galaxy? So I, I kind of forgot this part when you were asking me about the assumptions that go into my model. Although we're not trying to mimic any particular galaxy that exists out there, we are starting with a spiral galaxy that is like the Milky Ways. The reason we're assuming a spiral galaxy is we believe that the process that controls the way galaxies form their stars, that controls how that gas gets into the galaxy and forms those stars, we believe that that process works differently for different shapes of galaxies. So there are what are called elliptical galaxies. They're just kind of round blobs of stars. Those usually also tend to be those quiescent galaxies I was talking about, those galaxies that are not really forming stars. Those two things tend to go together. And they have a different process for controlling their meager amounts of star formation than we expect out of star-forming spiral galaxies. Those are also properties that tend to go together. Galaxies that are spirals tend to be actively forming stars. So in this study, we assumed a spiral galaxy, very like the Milky Way, living on its own in space. But I say that we didn't try to target, we, didn't, we don't try to recreate the Milky Way necessarily, because that's a really hard challenge to perfectly recreate what's out in space. If we could do that, I think I'd say that there, we knew everything already. So it's more interesting, it's more useful to ask specific questions about how galaxies function rather than trying to copy any specific one. But we are working with a spiral galaxy because we're basically looking at the mechanism for spiral galaxies, how they control their star formation. Thanks for explaining this, Claire. I feel like with your research, there are so many different fields that you can go into. Now that you're a fifth-year PhD candidate and you're wrapping up your thesis, what are you planning on doing whenever you graduate? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I came into grad school wanting to be a professor, and for many years that was my motivating goal. But there's also a lot of really interesting jobs sort of outside of the academic track, as we tend to refer to it. I've been looking at actually a couple of jobs at supercomputing centers. So my work takes place on supercomputers. There has to be staff that runs those supercomputers, but there's also usually staff that helps researchers make good use out of that tool, right? So running on a supercomputer is, there's a lot of technical caveats. There's a lot of things to be aware of. It's just sort of a very different realm of thinking than most people are used to encountering. And so there's research support staff that helps researchers take advantage of supercomputing resources and make good use of those machines. And so those are jobs that I've been looking at and I think that's pretty cool. One of the typical, I guess, 
career paths that astronomers in general go on, both people who do theory work like I do with computer with computer models and also people who do observations. A very common track is to be a data scientist, which is a very broad umbrella term that kind of covers a lot of different things. But I know people who do data analytics at Twitter. They look at data out of hospitals to look at patient satisfaction and how care is going on in hospitals. I know people who work at engineering startups trying to use machine learning to solve engineering problems. And so they're doing machine learning research. So yeah, I'm looking at some of those other options now, um, trying to broaden my horizons of what I want to do. Yeah, I could really resonate with the idea of not going down a tenure track faculty position. Similarly, whenever I finish my PhD, I'm interested in pursuing a career in the government space. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Claire, to talk to us about your work on galaxy research and the way that they're able to form stars. Good luck with the rest of your thesis. Thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.